Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege for the last time to share with these students this school year. And I just pray that you would again be here in a powerful way, that you would give us practical, encouraging ways to ensure that we can stand uh, when we enter a time of trouble such as has not been since there was a nation. I know you have answers for us. I know that you're rooting for us and not against us, and that you delight and long for us to be ready. So just open our eyes to the importance of the decisions we're making now and how to best be ready when that time comes. Speak, O God, I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How to stand at the end of time. Uh, If you see in the picture there, there are three Hebrew men with a fourth figure in the furnace with them. That's actually what we're going to be talking about. Now, to give some framework here, Daniel chapter 3 is relevant because of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 2 is relevant because of Daniel chapter 1. They were given a very difficult situation uh, from their being brought away from Israel. Basically, they were turned into eunuchs by means of eunuch turning into Ness, because I want to be PC this evening. And anyway, they were turned into eunuchs and were forced to march nearly a thousand miles through the desert to Babylon. And just imagine how humiliating and degrading this is to these young men. They were taking the upper echelon of Israel into Babylon, so that involves people who are are higher in esteem, whether it be royalty or uh, the intelligent young people, that they could train in the Babylonian schools and prepare them to be Babylonian servants, right? So in Daniel chapter 1, when they get to Babylon, they're different. Other Hebrews are brought into the presence of the king, but Daniel and his three friends refuse to eat from the king's table, whether it be the delicacies of his table and the alcohol and so on. They refused. And they said, just give us water and vegetables, which kind of worried the king's servant because Ashpenaz, I think, because he thought, if you guys look worse than the others, I'm going to get in trouble. And they said, just give us 10 days. And after 10 days, it it was very clear to everyone that they were exceedingly wiser than everyone else. And so they were brought into favor with the king at this stage. were actually given higher positions already in Daniel 1. They were faithful to the charge they were given in their homeland. They were faithful to God in their decisions. So when Daniel 2 came, and Daniel, uh, the king tells the, in Daniel chapter 2, the, when the wise men ask for time, he says, you're just buying for time, and you're not going to get it. If I don't get the dream and the interpretation, you're all going to die. But when Daniel goes up and asks the king for time, he's given time. Why? Because of Daniel 1. Because he stood for God from the get-go in his experience. He didn't think, oh man, I better get serious about God now that I'm in prison. Like He was continually yielding his decision-making to God every step of the way. That's what happens. So Daniel 3 is significant because we get to this story where a decree is made. And the decree is basically that uh, it's absurd, really. But in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue, right? Gold, silver, metal, or gold, silver, they're all metal, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay mixed in the feet. And he's told that a kingdom inferior to his is going to rule after him. He's not too pleased about this, but he's humbled in Daniel 2, right? At the end of Daniel giving the explanation, he literally falls on his face before a castrated servant and declares that your God is the guy. That's pretty amazing. The king of the known world saying that to this young servant. Daniel chapter 3 comes around, and he's not too happy with this idea of metals other than gold. So he decides to erect a 6-cubit by 66-cubit statue, I think, uh, on the plain of Dura that's made of solid gold, 
and he's commanding that everyone from the surrounding nations come and worship this idol, this, this image. And as they get to the plain of Dura, they play the music, the music goes dooby-doo, and everyone's supposed to bow on their knees to the image. And like, like these three obdurate weeds on the plain of Dura, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are referred to in Babylonian names for reasons I don't understand, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are their, their mama-given names, but for whatever reason, they get the Babylonian names, but Daniel keeps the Hebrew name. I don't know why that is. I'm not dogmatic about it. It's just weird to me. But anyway, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down. Like, the decree happens, but they don't bow. And the king's initial response is one that he's not too happy. If you want to turn to Daniel 3, I'll read a few lines from this. I want to kind of summarize for time's sake this evening. Plus, I'm under the assumption that most of us have heard this story. Um, if I'm wrong in that, my sincerest apologies. But Daniel chapter 3, we'll say in verse 9. So, actually verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, these three Jews. By the way, there, I'm absolutely certain of the fact that there were Jews who did bow. It's awkward because these three didn't bow, because I'm sure there was more than three Jews there. But they said, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. Now it says in counsel and wisdom is how Daniel responds to the king's decree in Daniel chapter 2. But Nebuchadnezzar here responds in rage and fury. And he gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now... If you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And look at what he says next. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now, if they're feeling salty, they can tell him the same God that put you on your face in Daniel chapter 2. They were wiser than me and didn't say that. Uh, but it's the same God, the same one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need. We have no need, they say. Um, sorry, I was thinking of something else and lost my train of thought. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Even if God does not choose to deliver us, we're still not bowing to your image. We serve a faithful God who can protect and provide for us, but even if he doesn't protect and provide for us, we're not going anywhere. We will not serve your gods. Let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And he's not too pleased about this. But I want to read briefly here a quote uh, from, I think this is from Prophets and Kings. As the three Hebrews stood before the king, he was convinced that they possessed something the other wise men of the kingdom did not have. They had been faithful in the performance of how many duties? Every duty, and it says that he would give them another trial. 
In the same way in which Daniel is permitted time because of Daniel 1, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are permitted extra time because of Daniel 1. And because they took every duty they were given seriously. Whenever given a charge, they stood for Jesus, no matter what the situation may be. That's Daniel 3. Then the king gets super uber mad. um, And he says, that's it. Game over. Curtains for you folk. And... In verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, and their turbans, and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And if you didn't read any further, you think, oh man, that's it. Like these guys are are dead. They're martyrs for Jesus. But the story continues. The Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste. And you, you can just imagine, the king is kind of sitting on his throne. They throw the guys in the furnace. And then he kind of has this. And he gets up and he goes and looks at what's going on. In the, there are not just three men there. Look at what he sees. Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke to his counselors saying, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fires? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like who? Like the Son of God. Then he calls the men forward and tells them, hey, you need to get out here. And then he says, everybody who won't worship their God, they're going to be thrown in the furnace and they're going to die, right? He goes from one side to another. He's kind of like Peter. Like, you are not going to wash my feet. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Fine, wash all of me then. He just goes from one extreme to the next. But here's the thing that's important to us. What is happening in Daniel chapter 3 is an example. It's a type of what's going to happen with the people of God at the end of time. We're told in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 14 and other places in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 and other places that there's going to be an image erected to a beast. And the anti-Christian power is going to be, there are going to be other beast powers that are bringing people to come and worship this image that has been set up. Very same situation. And it's a picture of us of what's going to happen at the end of time. And these guys stood. But the thing that's encouraging to me is the people who stand for Jesus stand beside Jesus. Jesus is found with them when they stand for him. And glory is brought to God because all these surrounding nations that Nebuchadnezzar was bringing from every nook and cranny that he could find to worship his image end up leaving worshiping the true God of heaven. And I love this, that God takes situations that look awful, that look helpless, and he uses them for his glory. He uses them to promulgate the gospel to places that haven't heard it otherwise. So that's Daniel chapter 3, and I want to read the comments that she has on this. She says, By the deliverance of his faithful servants, the Lord declared that he takes the stand with his oppressed and rebukes all earthly powers that rebel against the authority of heaven. The three Hebrews declared to the whole nation of Babylon their faith in whom they worshipped, and they relied on God. In the hour of their trial, uh, they remembered the promise. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, 
and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. That's Isaiah 43, 2. That was written before these guys got thrown in that furnace. Remember this morning how I talked about remembering the promises of God, remembering the faithfulness of God in your experiences, and reciting to God the promises He made? I assure you, and we're told through the lens of the spirit of prophecy here, that these young men recited to God the promise he had made to provide for them when they're put through the fire. And what did he do? He kept his promise. They were storing these treasures in their heart when the tree was green so that when the tree was barren, they had something to stand on. Does that make sense? She continues, And in a marvelous manner, their faith in the living word had been honored in the sight of all. The tidings of their wonderful deliverance were carried to many countries by the representatives of different nations that had been invited by Nebuchadnezzar to the dedication. Through the faithfulness of his children, God was glorified in all the earth. Something that happened in a location in the plain of Dura was now proclaimed throughout the whole earth because people stood for Jesus and because Jesus stood with his people. Important are the lessons to be learned from the experience of the Hebrew youth on the plain of Dura. In this our day, many of God's servants, though innocent of wrongdoing, will be given over to suffer humiliation and abuse at the hands of those who, inspired by Satan, are filled with envy and religious bigotry. Especially will, be the, will the wrath of man be aroused against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, and at last a universal decree will denounce these as deserving of death. She's making the same application, that this is a picture of what will happen at the end of time. The season of distress before God's people will call for a faith that will not falter. His children must make it manifest that He is the only object of their worship, and that no consideration, not even that of life itself, can induce them to make the least concession to false worship. To the loyal heart, the commands of sinful, finite men will sink into insignificance beside the word of the eternal God. That implies you have a knowledge of the word of God for yourself. Right? This is why communion with God is so important. Truth will be obeyed, though the result be imprisonment or exile or death. This is, I think, the second to last paragraph here. As in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so in the closing period of earth's history, the Lord will work mightily in behalf of those who stand steadfastly for the right. He who walked with the Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace will be with his followers wherever they are. His abiding presence will comfort and sustain. And in the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such as has not been since there was a nation, his chosen ones will stand unmoved. That tells me that God sees that he knows that people will stand. We're scared to death if we're honest with ourselves about whether we will stand, and we'll get to that. But God seems to be abundantly confident in the fact that people will stand. And we're promised that if we stand, Christ will stand with us. Last quote here. Satan, with all the host of evil, cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. Amen? Angels that excel in strength will protect them, and in their behalf, Jehovah will reveal himself as a God of gods, able to save to the uttermost those who have put their trust in him. God will not prove unfaithful to his people in the midst of their hardship and trial in the greatest difficulty the world has ever known. God has promised to be with you in those stages. One more example of someone standing, then we'll talk about how we stand. Daniel. Daniel was given a position. He's increased in his territory, right? In Daniel chapter 4, he stands for God in the midst of Belshazzar's reign. But in Daniel chapter 6, 
Daniel has been given a position that is very high in the kingdom, and Babylonians are not too excited. Actually, this means in Persians at this stage. Uh, the people in the kingdom are not too stoked about Daniel having this type of position. And they're looking for ways to get him in trouble to incriminate him. And they're filled with jealousy. And here's what the text says. Daniel 6, 4 and 5. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Tax evasion. He's tardy to work. Doesn't do his homework. Yells at his children. Now, he's a eunuch. Uh, but you get what I'm saying, right? Fill in the blank. Whatever day-to-day -day responsibilities that this man has, they're searching high and low to find something that they can accuse him for. Nor, and they says that, but they could find no fault because he was faithful, nor is there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Isn't that amazing? The only way that they can get this guy in trouble, he's so faithful in everything. He excels in excellence in every responsibility he's ever been given. That The only way they're going to be able to get him in trouble is if worshiping God is illegal. That's amazing to me. And so this is what they do. They come up with this brilliant idea, and the king of Medo-Persia doesn't even realize what happened. But they say, let's make it to where there's a decree that no one should pray to anybody but to you for the next 30 days, I think. We can look there, Daniel chapter 6, and we'll pick up in verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together. Now, Daniel's one of these people, so it's not all, but they make it sound like it's all, and he doesn't even think about the ramifications of what they say. We'd, we say that you need to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So it is now set in stone. You cannot change this. No one can change this. The law of the Medes and Persians is very much like ex cathedra right? When you say it, it's it, right? The papal basically view that whenever the Pope says something, it's it. That's the deal. That's how it is. No one can change it. This is how it's treated in the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel here is in a lot of trouble, potentially. The decree's made, and word gets to the king, because Daniel's not going to stop doing what he does, and notice that Daniel does not hide in a corner somewhere, right? Oh yeah, I'll pray, now, he hasn't read the New Testament because it doesn't exist yet, but you can just imagine, well, Jesus says you should pray in your closet. So I'm going to hide from everybody and make sure that no one sees me when I pray. I'll still be faithful to God. Daniel didn't do that. Daniel literally opens the windows of his, of his apartment or house or whatever. He kneels down and he prays towards Jerusalem as erect and tall as he was the day before, as determined as he was the day before. How many times a day? Three times a day unceasing. So these people take this news to the king and say, look, man, your guy Daniel's not towing the line here, and you said, and you can't change it, he's got to die. He has to be thrown into the lion's den, and his heart sinks. He feels awful in this moment, and he does everything he can to try to stop it, but he realizes there's nothing I can do. There's not a thing I can do to stop this train. So finally, towards the end of sundown, because they tell him, look, man, this is a decree of the Medes and Persians. You can't play around. So they bring him in, and they put Daniel in the lion's den, 
And the king has this amazing charge. He says, uh, so the king, verse 16, gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. I think this is amazing. A pagan king has full faith that God will provide for Daniel. Why? Because they have the history, first of all, Daniel chapter 3. And he knows the caliber of man that Daniel is and the faithfulness of the God that Daniel serves. And I think this is amazing. This is a huge context. It's overlooked a lot of times in this story. Continuing, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lord's, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Verse 18, Now when the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, with no musicians were brought before him. He wants no entertainment, wants nothing else. He's just going to fast and pray, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, uh, this is the king's regret, we're going to God's triumph now. Um, Verse 20, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a uh, a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve how often, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. So an angel from heaven is sent to protect Daniel in the midst of this lion's den. Jesus Christ himself has come to protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The decrees are very similar. Worship anybody in any way apart from the way that the faithful God of Israel says that you should worship. And both times, these people who were faithful in Daniel 1, Daniel 2, now we're seeing in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, they continue to stand for Jesus in the midst of adversity, in the midst of hardship. And word of this gets to the whole kingdom, and it's a powerful, powerful witness for the the glory of God. I want to give one more quote here from Prophets and Kings on what happened in Daniel 6. Then I want to kind of just make some practical application for us, which I think will be very encouraging and helpful and practical. I hope so. She says, from the story of Daniel's deliverance, we may learn that in seasons of trial and gloom, God's children should be just what they were when their prospects were bright with hope and their surroundings all that they could desire. We should be the same people in hardship that we were when there was no hardship, when there was no potential for hardship in what we saw in our lives. She said we should be the same person. We shouldn't be anyone different. Daniel in the lion's den was the same Daniel who stood before the king as chief among the ministers of state and as a prophet of the Most High. A man whose heart is stayed upon God will be the same in the hour of his greatest trial as he is in prosperity. When the light and favor of God and of man beam upon him, faith reaches to the unseen and grasps eternal realities. Only by faithfulness in the little things. This is now from Christ Object Lessons. Let me go back to that, first of all. Let me just stop here for a second. Most of us are terrified of the end of time. We may not confess this publicly, but we're absolutely horrified because everyone and their mother in the church is telling us that we're going to be standing without a mediator. We're going to be standing, and if we don't, we're going to be lost. And it's terrifying to us because we just wonder, 
How is it that these guys muster these supernatural guts at that stage in Earth's history? And is that going to happen with me? We assume that these people were someone different on that day than they were a day before. And how do I know that I'm going to be that type of person? It's scary to us, isn't it? But LOI gives us some insight into how we can be ready. And I want to kind of elaborate on that as we go. Christ Object Lessons 356. Only by faithfulness in the little things can the soul be trained to act with fidelity under larger responsibilities. God brought Daniel and his fellows into connection with the great men of Babylon, that these heathen men might become acquainted with the principles of true religion. This is just how mission-minded the God of heaven is. That even when he's disciplining the Israelites for being idolatrous pagan fools who are spitting in his face and he allows them to be carried into exile... He always has Josephs and Daniels who act as, pay, as um, what's the word I'm looking for? As Trojan horses in these kingdoms. People who will show what the true God is like so that even when God is disciplining and displacing the Israelites, they're still being used to witness to these other nations that there's a living God. Remember, the Israelites were established not because God is, is racist or showing favoritism. This whole idea of nationalism is absolute fallacy. Yeah, I said it. It's fallacy. The Israelites were not someone that God thought was better than everyone else. They were the missionaries to reach the world to tell them, you can become Israelites too. That's the way that the Israelites were meant to work. So in this situation, God is not trying to make the Israelites better than everyone else. When they messed up, they got a whooping too, just like the Canaanites. And in the midst of this whooping, because they won't share Jesus with these people, I'll give you a whooping, send you into their jurisdiction, and people will still preach Jesus to them. I think that's amazing. God is so mission-minded, He's so evangelistically-minded, and so unracist, if that's even a word, that He's sending His exiled people to testify to pagans. There's a God in heaven who's real. Try what you want, but I'm going to prove to you that there's a God in heaven who's real. And that's what she points out here. In the midst of the nation of idolaters, Daniel was to represent the character of God. And boy, did he do an amazing job by Christ's strength. How did he become fitted for a position of so great trust and honor? It was his faithfulness in the little things that gave complexion to his whole life. Daniel did not have like an extra ligament or something else that made his faith even stronger. He understood the value of his day-to-day decisions. And this is what fitted him to be that type of person at that stage in earth's history. It was his faithfulness in the little things that gave complexion to his whole life. He honored God in the smallest duties, and the Lord cooperated with him. To Daniel and his companions, God gave knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, Daniel 1.17. And as God called Daniel to witness for him in Babylon, so he calls us to be his witnesses in the world today. Now, if God is calling us to be witnesses in this world today then we need to be training in the way that Daniel trained. And how did Daniel train? Faithfulness in the small duties. Faithfulness in the day-to-day responsibilities. That's how he prepared. In the smallest as well as the largest affairs of his life, he desires, uh, or of life, he desires us to reveal to men the principles of his kingdom. This is why laziness and slothfulness are an offense to God because they don't represent him, and it hurts your witness in the big times of need. Does that make sense? Now, the beautiful thing is, when God demands excellence of us, or when God asks excellence of us, he also promises to give us the power to perform excellence in the things he asks of us. 
He's not just saying, you better do perfect or else I'm picking somebody else. God's covenant to the Israelites was, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk on my statutes and you will do them. He wasn't just saying, live a perfect life so people will know that I'm God alone. I'll enable you to live a perfect life so that they'll know that I'm God alone. But I need your permission. I need you to cry out to me in the midst of all of your decisions. And I promise you, I will be faithful to show up and you will work with excellence. This is exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus continually abided in God. Jesus continually surrendered his will to God at every step of the way. Everything he did, he says, of myself, I can do nothing. And you know who said that? God. Jesus in his humanity said, I can do nothing of myself. He continually relied upon God for strength, for wisdom, for excellence, and everything he did was perfect. He lived a perfect life in human flesh to prepare us to be able to live a perfect life in human flesh. But the answer is found by abiding in God, by yielding our choices and our desires to God, and he'll give you all the power you need. Every ounce of sufficiency and strength you need to stand, it is yours in Christ right now. But we have to abide in him and ask that of God. Does that make sense? But we don't think our decisions really matter. It's just whether I prayed the prayer or not. It's just whether I do this or do that. If I do good deeds for people, then, then I'm A-OK. -okay. And we ignore the other decisions in our lives. But what we don't realize is those decisions we're making from day to day are making us into the person that we will be on that day. The day that we're all afraid of. So here's our hope of being able to stand. First of all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel did not all of a sudden muster some magical faith on the plain of Dora or, you know, opening his windows. They did the same thing as they had always done when face-to-face -face with a decision to make. They stood for Jesus. This is so profound and awesome. It's simple, but it's awesome. They weren't someone different then. We're hoping we'll be someone different then. They weren't. That wasn't how it worked, and that isn't how it works. The decisions you're making now, the reason why they were able to stand then is because their day-to-day -day lives had been filled with fidelity to God and to His Word through prayerful surrender in each of their decisions. That's how it works. That's how it worked for Jesus. That's how it worked for these amazingly powerful paragons of faith that we see. The way that you and I then can stand is by giving God our decisions today. Well, how am I going to stand then? By standing today. By valuing the decisions that you make today. The, because the decision I make today will make me into the person that I will be then. Does that make sense? This, this may seem overly simplistic, but this is God's plan. You know what it's called? Character development. That's all it is. When I do that today, I'm preparing for my faithfulness then. Now, this should encourage us, first and foremost, because God seems to place a higher value on my day-to-day -day decisions than I do. That humbles me. That helps me to better understand that. Second of all, because God seems to have more faith in my ability to stand at that time than I do. Most of us are scared straight because we're just sure that we're going to fail then. But just imagine, I don't know if I had this in the slide or not. Yeah, God would not have us living at that stage of earth's history unless he had faith in your ability to stand. Just think about that. Do you think that God created people to be losers? 
Do you think that God created people to not be able to succeed in the things that he would ask of them? That would be unreasonable. That would be manipulative, and that would be something that would be worthy of casting off the God of heaven if you worked that way. But the only reason you are living at this stage in earth's history is because he already knows that you will be able to stand by abiding in Christ. I think that's powerful. I think it's amazing and it's profound. That's how it works. He wouldn't have you here if he didn't believe that you could stand. So the question then is, what are you going to do with God's belief in you? Will you use that as your impetus to require and ask of God to be your faithfulness in those moments? Or will you just run for the hills? I think this is an amazing teaching. The same practical lessons, again, can be applied to our character development. Sanctification is this very thing. Day to day, giving God our decisions. Jesus, day by day, is making you into somebody that you could not become apart from Christ. So when you wake up in the morning and you're seeking to know the will of God for your life, you know what you do? You get in your prayer closet, you commune with God just like Jesus did, and you ask for strength to make the right decisions that day. That's why this morning's message is kind of preface this. And from there, when you're face-to-face with a hard decision, you know, my boss is asking me to make a decision that I just, I don't have complete peace about. I don't think that this is above board, you know, in an ethical sense. Do I do this or do I not? You know what you need to do. And you can give that decision to Jesus and stand for him. When you're in a situation where you didn't prepare for your test, and it would be far easier to cheat and look at the person's test beside you, you can make that same decision. You can yield it to Jesus and own it. If you fail your test, so what? But you choose to do the right thing and to take responsibility. Does that make sense? And by the way, you would probably be studying because you're yielding all your decisions to God. Last night when you were thinking, should I study or play basketball, you realize, yeah, I need to study, right? And the thing is, if you stay on top of your studies, you actually have time to do stuff like that. It's crazy. When we actually manage our schedule and when we yield our schedule-making abilities to Christ, He can teach you how to be efficient. You can literally come to Jesus about everything. Every aspect of your life, how you make your schedule, how you do your job, how you treat your wife, how you treat your children, how you treat your parents, your your fellow students, you can come to Jesus with all of that. Many people, again, are freaked out about the end of time and the idea of perfection specifically because a whole lot of people are harping on perfection, but I'm so frustrated because they do this at the expense of communicating how God makes us perfect. And it's insane to me. And it breaks the heart of God, really, because the people of God are so discouraged because all they're being told is what God expects of them, but they're not being told how God enables them to fulfill the things that God expects. That's the new covenant. All the things that I'm asking of you, I will enable you to do. But if all you do is hammer and and discourage people to death, and I mean literal death, they're leaving our church in droves right now because of stuff like this. The end-time scenario is not something that's under question. It's solid biblically. The problem is, it just seems, and it's even more plausible in the last, like, you know, two years, last five years, really. But once you start to see these things, we just feel that we're not going to be good enough. And it's just like the people in Jeremiah we talked about twice this week. It's hopeless. I'm just going to live a lost lifestyle. It's where a lot of people are. I'm not going to be good enough to stand. I'll never be that person because we are failing our members by not communicating the power of the gospel to transform the life. God has promised to make you into what you need to be. If you'll give yourself to him, if you'll yield your day-to-day decisions to him as Jesus did, guess what? You don't have to be afraid anymore. You can stand. 
You can stand for Jesus on the plain of Dura when everyone around you bows. You don't have to pretend to tie your shoe. You don't have to pretend to have to go to the bathroom. You can stand for Jesus unashamedly because you gave him yesterday's decision and the day before that's decision and the day before that's decision and the year before that's decision. You're developing a lifestyle and a pattern and a habit and a train of thought, neurological pathways to continually seek power from God. And you'll find yourself standing on the plain of Dura not being afraid. You'll be, evil to te- you'll be able to tell the popes and the prelates, but if not, I'm still standing. You'll be able to say that. This is what God wants for you. God does not want you to fail. God is not setting you up to fail. People who are preaching to you may be setting you up to fail, but God is not. And you're hearing today that God is able to help you to stand, and it starts by giving him your day-to-day decisions. That's how the process was meant to work. That's what God wants for us. This is what prepares us to stand without a mediator. And I have to deal with this because people get so freaked out about the fact that we're told the great controversy that a time is coming where the people of God will actually have to stand without a mediator. We need to define our terms. The role of the priest was a mediatory role. Whenever the person killed their animal at the entrance of the sanctuary, the priest, as the mediator, took the blood of their sacrifice from there. They confessed their sin. They killed the animal. They took this blood into the presence of God and sprinkled it on the veil to make them right with God, to make atonement, to make reconciliation. Jesus is not going to forsake you in the time of trouble. Are you hearing me today? Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not leaving you. He doesn't cease loving you. His role as a mediator ceases, which means that he isn't transferring sin into the sanctuary because a sanctuary has been cleansed. Are you understanding the difference today? There's a huge difference, and for whatever reason, we're not communicating this clearly enough. And I've had to counsel so many people, adults and young people alike, on this very issue. Uh, What am I going to do when I don't have a mediator? The same thing you did the day before. You gave your decisions to Jesus, and a time comes that you'll never believe it. You don't need a mediator anymore. That's what happens. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm so done with these Christians who are trying to live a Christian life, and they can't get it right. Jesus is trying to make us ready. He's doing everything he can to make us ready, and a time comes when that work needs to be finished. But his love for you never ceases. Even the people who are lost, God will continue loving even them. The love of God, the love of Jesus never ceases, never changes. But that role has to cease because the sanctuary is being cleansed. You understand the difference? I just want to make sure that's abundantly clear to you guys today so you're not discouraged off the battlefield. Lastly, I want to close with with a couple thoughts here, um, kind of reminding us of what was covered this morning. Oh, praise God. We're doing great on time. All right. So you guys remember how many people were here when the ice storm happened a couple years ago? How many students were here? Oh, man, no student. Well, Josh was here. Ah, oh, man. So, Bubs and Sarah, I guess. And Joel. Oh, hey, Joel. Yeah, this guy. So, I want to tell you a story about the ice storm. The first batch of ice was going to come. This is in February, right, Debbie? Beginning of February, I think. February of 2015. I was living in Cumberland Lakes, right across the highway here. And God convicted me on Sunday. Super clear conviction. God spoke to me. And he said, gas 
water, food, and move your firewood. And I saw that weather was not going to be too conducive. It was going to be kind of nasty. So all day Sunday, I did that. I went to Kroger. I bought two cases of water or Walmart, wherever. I bought cases of water. I bought food. And I got as much firewood as I could possibly get from behind the garage up onto the covered porch area just outside of where I was living. Monday morning comes, and it's, it's ugly. Think about a quarter of an inch of ice came that day. And the roads were not really passable. My Bible studies canceled because I was a Bible worker at this stage, and I would come and teach here. But I was doing chapel here that week. But because the road is kind of precarious, the Heritage Road, the, the hill there, I parked at the store and I walked all the way down, and I gave chapel every day and taught Bible class, and then I'd walk back up the hill with my backpack, and I'd go back to my house, I'd do what Bible study stuff I could do. But it was so cold that week that that ice never went away. Some of the highways eventually started to open up, but not a lot. Then Friday came, and I was supposed to preach Friday night and Sabbath, and, I, and, and the, the ugly stuff was going to start coming Friday right around sundown. Knowing this, I decided I'm going to, and, and I just felt convicted, I need to bring clothes a change of clothes, and just plan on staying on campus that night. So I did. And I preach, things are fine here, no power outages, no problem. But then, the next morning, when I wake up, there's this eerie sound, and those who were here, you'll never forget it. This sound of... (coughs) Snap, crackle, pop, you hear it everywhere. And when you look outside, you just see all of these evergreen trees that have just been devastated. Another half inch, I think, came. So there's nearly three quarters of an inch of ice all over the place. My car looked like it was welded to the ground by ice that I had parked outside of the the front office, which is that way. And I knew that car's not going anywhere. I'm not going to be able to do anything with that. So I just stayed on campus on Sabbath. Gilbert and I tried to go to my house Sabbath evening after I finished preaching. I preached without any power, by the way. I remember that. And Gilbert, in the Oldsmobile thing they had, Wendy's old car that's got four-wheel drive, he tries to drive us to my house. And it's an absolute war zone, y'all. Trees are down everywhere. They're down in the middle of the road. There's power lines down. We go this way. We hit a roadblock. Roadblock. We back up. We go down to the side road. There's a roadblock there. We come around. We end up driving off the road through the ditch and then back on the road and try to get around. Then it happens again. We cannot get to the house that I'm staying at. We can't get there. So we stop like two blocks away, and I end up going to the house where I'm staying. They have a wood stove in this house. And it doesn't require power, and it's a huge kind of cathedral open living room. So it's like this shape, but it's another story up. So from the, the, the base floor of the house all the way to the roof, it's just wide open. So that heat radiates all into the loft area where I slept. That's where I stayed. I was taking care of this property for some people. And as I'm in this situation, I have ample firewood. They have a generator that can power the water pump for their well, and their Renai tankless water heater, and the refrigerator, and like one light. There's enough power for me to be able to do this. And the Oliviers were living down the road from me. They have no power, and the only source of heat they have is a propane fireplace, which is just going to blast through it. So I have the Oliviers come stay in our house. They stay with me up in the loft area, and I stay in the other bedroom, which was freezing. It was like 50 degrees. And I tried that little tea light clay pot thing. Mm Mm-mm. Either I'm just completely ignorant or that doesn't actually work. It's probably the first. It's probably operator error, but I froze to death in that room, but they were fine. But we were able to cook because it was a propane stove. There was ample propane. I had gas to have the generator for the first couple days, and I could take 
I could drive carefully. They finally started to clear out the roads in the main areas, and I could get to 120, I could get to 62 down to 127 and go into Crossville and come back. But through this whole time, I had everything I needed to survive so that I could focus on doing ministry for other people. Didn't have to worry about it. Five gallons of gas would last me for eight hours of generator time. I ended up buying, it took forever to find one, but I ended up buying this big five-gallon like diesel gas can, a yellow one, because that's all I could get. And over the span of that time, there was no power for six days. And it was such a witness, first of all, to the people in Monterey that the school cut their way in from here all the way into Monterey, like eight or nine miles, and were helping people when they themselves did not have power. It was such a powerful witness to them. And if you think of this, there are huge parallels to the end of time. Huge parallels. So us being willing to serve people and things are starting to go south causes them to realize there's something different about you. The people of God are provided for, and they're serving the people who are not provided for. They're living like kings, we're told, right? So I'm living in a situation because God told me what to do. By the time that was all over, it was, I spent, I, I tallied it up on a Friday. I preached at Crossville the following weekend. And I spent $200 on Friday. I realized how much I had spent between the gas can and the gas that I spent that I wouldn't have normally spent money on. I spent $200 that I wouldn't have normally spent. That next morning, Sabbath morning, I'm preaching at Crossville. One of the deacons comes up to me and shakes my hand, and there's something in his hand. And I just put it in my pocket, and he said, somebody here said they wanted to give this to you. I get home, and you know what it was? Two $100 bills. And God affirmed in my mind at that stage that He will ensure that the people of God know what to do and when to do it. I knew. I knew in a moment that God was showing me that when that time of trouble comes, we're going to know what to do. We're told that, but we just think, yeah, but how? You know the real how? What we talked about this morning. When you commune with God consistently in the Word of God and in prayer, you learn to hear the voice of God. And when you're given pleadings by the voice of God, you don't argue with Him because you recognize His voice and you go where He leads. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it seems kind of strange, it's going to lead you where you need to go. Does that make sense? So you're not only communing with God, but you're yielding your day-to-day -day decisions to Him. And if we do this, we're going to be the people we need to be, and we're going to be ready for what comes at the end of time. I just know it. I just know that because I've experienced in my life already, and I know that this is a microcosm of what's going to happen then. I'm fully convinced of that. There's a God in heaven who does not want you to be lost. There's a God in heaven who wants you to be ready and who has everything that's necessary to make you ready. But the choice is yours. What will you do when given the invitation to commune with God on a daily basis? What will you do when you're given the invitation and the privilege to seek power from God in each day-to-day -day decision? What choice will you make? It's not the God's future decision that we need to be afraid of, young people. That's not what we need to be afraid of. It's the decisions you're making today that you need to be afraid of. Because those are making you who you will be then. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves you. He wants you to be ready. And what he's going to do on that day is give you what you asked for on the days before that. That's what's going to happen. He's not going to finally say, finally, I can get rid of these people. Mm -mm. This is the hardest thing for God to do. To turn you over to your own choices. The power of choice matters, folks. The will, the power of decision has phenomenal power. 
The enemy realizes this, and so he causes us to downplay our day-to-day responsibilities while being terrified by hearing Christless messages that don't talk about how Christ prepares his people, just that you should be prepared. This is how we can be ready. This is the hope that God sets before you today, but the choice is going to be yours. So it's yours. But I hope that through the course of this week, you've seen that there's a God in heaven who truly does care and is doing everything he can to reach you. And those thoughts of shame and guilt and condemnation you're contending with don't come from him. Shame and condemnation, I'll phrase it that way. And that even people who are living lifestyles of sin can still be reached by the power of the gospel. Right? This guy was an alcoholic, homosexual, who all the while loved God, but thought God hated him. And when he came face to face with the preaching of the sufferings of Christ, everything changed. He said, I was separated from being gay in the midst of hearing the sufferings of Jesus. That's what God wants for you. The gospel works. There's a practical application, but we need to see through the course of this week. Uh, Sam was mentioning these are kind of like stepping stones, and I agree with that kind of dealing with the lies that we're believing about ourselves and the lies that we're believing about God and then seeing what God is really looking for. And you know what it is? It's relationship. It's communion. It's a relationship that can stand the test of fire, pun intended. That's what he wants, a relationship that is fireproof. That's what he's looking for. And it's available to you today, but the choice is yours. So I want to invite you to kneel with me as we close out this week to give you a chance to take hold of this precious gift that Christ is offering us. God, we're coming to realize tonight that our power of choice and of the will matters more maybe than we realized. And I pray that through the power of Christ, we would find ourselves and through the power of the love and the drawing love of Christ that we would desire to commune with you, that we would realize the privilege we have to give our decisions to you, and that we would be able to have the victorious life that you always wanted for us, not just that you expect from us, but that you always wanted for us and that you've made available to us. So Jesus, we give you permission to have your way today, to mold and shape us into your image, to make us just like Jesus to give us that that ability to think and to recognize that we can continually come to you and abide in you and stand because of you. Drive all discouragement and lies from our hearts and from our minds and make us into the people that you long for us to be. Forgive our sin of unbelief, of stubbornly trying to do for ourselves what only Christ can do, and for being unwilling to come to you with the smallest things because we thought you didn't care about them. Now we see it. God, I pray that each person in this room, and counting myself, would see the value of the small things in our lives, that we would value them, that we would succeed in them through the power of Christ, and that when that day comes, we will have nothing to fear, that we will have a faith that can say, but if not, and that we will be those three obdurate weeds on the plain of Dura. This is our plea today, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.